0: Hi, I'm Michael Apple. I'm in discussion with Stephen Gruzd, head of the Russia-Africa project at the South African Institute of International Affairs. Uh, Stephen, good to chat to you. From your understanding, what is the South African government's official position on Russia-Ukraine?
1: Hi, Michael. South Africa's official position is we are calling for a ceasefire, we are calling for mediation, we are calling for conflict resolution. And we don't want to be seen to be picking one side or the other. Um, in a number of statements by Durko the Department of International Relations and Cooperation, over the week, we have pushed that line. Uh, the president this, uh, in, in his newsletter this week said that South Africa will... that all, the, the, all sides' views must be taken into account, that dialogue is the only way, that the United Nations needs to get involved in this, and uh, it supports the Secretary General. Uh, only in one statement have we said, unequivocally, Russia must withdraw its its troops from Ukraine. And that was on the 24th of February. Everything before that and since then has been more, we want to stay neutral, we want to promote dialogue, we want to make sure the uh, Russian point of view is is actually taken into account, their security concerns. Um so we're mentioning Russia less and less in these statements.
0: I think it's important to note, you've mentioned there that we uh, put out a rather strong statement uh, against Russia calling on them to withdraw their troops. What ultimately happened to that statement, Stephen?
1: Nothing really happened because the Russian troops are still there. Uh, the statement is still on the DURCO website. But as I said, it's it's been bookended by uh, calls rather for for peace and for dialogue and for reconciliation, without fingering Russia.
0: Well, let me let me ask instead: What happened to Naledi Pandor, according to the Sunday newspapers, after issuing that uh, that statement? Ah,
1: well, there was let's say a difference of opinion, and uh, was uh, according to the Sunday newspapers, there was a war of words between the President and the Minister of International Relations and Cooperation. When she subsequently met, or uh, spoke at places like the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva, she was more measured. And in that statement, she did not say Russia must leave Ukraine, Russia must withdraw its troops. So this seems to be a little blip. Uh, but otherwise, we're flatlining if we can.
0: Uh, Stephen, let's be honest, it's not like South Africa having a particular position on on calling for dialogue or a cessation of hostilities is going to change anything on the ground. There are far more powerful nations that have done that and not much is changing. Why is it important for South Africans to know what their government's official line is?
1: Well, I think it's always important to know what your government is doing or saying or not doing and not saying in your name. I think we can just look at what happened at the United Nations uh, briefly for a few seconds. Um, A resolution was brought to the Security Council uh, that was censuring Russia, and it was not passed. It was abstained on by um, India, China, and the UAE, but it was vetoed by Russia, because Russia, as a permanent member of the Security Council, has veto power. Then a motion was tabled at the General Assembly, where there are 191 countries present. Uh, 141 countries voted to on a quite strongly worded resolution to, uh, for Russia to withdraw its troops and for there to be peace and dialogue in the area. South Africa abstained on that. We were one of 35 countries that abstained. Uh, six countries voted no, including Russia, North Korea, Syria, Eritrea, uh, and a number of African countries, eight of them were actually not even in the room When the vote was taken. So to get back to your question, I think it is very important for citizens to know what our government's official line is, uh, why it says what it says. We voted for the for this government, and they represent us. And if citizens don't agree with what government says, I think they are within their rights to question that, whether it's on social media or in the media or protest, or we wait until the next election. But foreign policy issues are important.
0: What did you read into our abstention?
1: I think uh, what was good was that South Africa explained its decision. So just after the vote was taken, an explanation went up on the DERCO website. This took, if you remember back to 2007, when we had a controversial vote on Myanmar, it took days and days and days for this vote to be explored. So South Africa says, uh, one, the process of putting the resolution together was not as consultative as it should be. Two, the resolution has a throwaway line at the bottom where it says we should call for peace and dialogue, but 80% of the resolution is critical of Russia. And I think uh, while South Africa says it's remaining neutral, many have read into that stance that if you're not against what Russia is doing, you're implicitly endorsing it. Now, I think it's more subtle than that and uh, south africa also in the president's letter this morning said that we have a lot of experience in conflict mediation in our own conflict people said this could never be resolved and actually the parties got around a table and resolved it south africa perhaps has skills that they could bring to bear but as you're right it's it's crowded there are a lot of countries that are trying to mediate here including big ones like france and germany Hungary has been mentioned. Israel has even been mentioned. And and, uh, Prime Minister Bennett took a trip to Russia and has had long conversations with President Zelensky. So there's nothing really to mediate at the moment because the guns are still firing. But other countries indeed are, are, are stepping in here.
0: I saw a tweet from the Russian embassy over the weekend, and I'd like to read it. So bear with me. Quote, Dear subscribers, we have received a great number of letters of solidarity from South Africans, both individuals and organizations. We appreciate your support and I'm glad you decided to stand with us today when Russia, like 80 years ago, is fighting Nazism in Ukraine. Close quote. Besides the actual war being fought on the ground, is there an information war going on here, Stephen?
1: Absolutely. This is hybrid warfare in its best form. Uh, on that particular tweet, I hope you saw the reply from the German embassy, I uh, which said, unfortunately, we are the experts on Nazism, and this is just nonsense. Um, indeed, it is an information war. You can see it in uh, social media. I'm sure all our feeds are full of commentary from people on the ground, from opinion makers, and indeed the leaders themselves. I think uh, President Zelensky has done an amazing job of uh, putting his view out there, of being personable, of being personal, and, and and of being very brave. I think Putin has appeared much more wooden and reserved, uh, some might say unhinged uh, at certain points. But, you know, he has these conferences around an enormous table where the other guy sits right at the back. Uh, you know, it looks something uh, like it's out of the movies. They, they, so there we have contrasting styles. And, of course, mm. supporters of both sides are exploiting social media to get their view across.
0: You've written a great uh, opinion piece uh, a few days ago about South Africa's seemingly position of quiet diplomacy um, and how we appear to be very hesitant to, to, as you say, even use words like war or to name Russia in certain statements. How did quiet diplomacy work out for us uh, in previous years?
1: Quiet diplomacy was a phrase that definitely came into the lexicon around our work on Zimbabwe. Uh, after the 2008 elections, which you'll remember then went to a runoff and there was extreme violence in between the two polls, South Africa said, said under President Mbeki that we refuse to uh, be uh, practicing megaphone diplomacy, we have quiet diplomacy, we will work behind the scenes. It did bring about the global political agreement in Zimbabwe, which led to a coalition government, which was then voted out of government in 2013. So while it's much maligned, I think there is a role for behind the scenes work in diplomacy. I mean, if there wasn't behind the scenes work by Norway, we wouldn't have had the Oslo Accords in in the Middle East. Now, you may say that those have been very unsuccessful. But the, uh, at the time, when they came out in the middle 90s, uh, they were groundbreaking. And that happened very much on the quiet. We also know from our own tradition, uh, transition that the ANC was meeting with government, that uh, P.W. Boote and F.W. de Kerk were meeting Mandela while he was in jail. That only came out years later. So uh, I, I think, you know, we, we do have diplomatic muscle, we do have a say, and we do have an important voice in the African continent and on the international stage. And I think President Ramaphosa is trying to recapture some of that voice, which may have been Quieter in the last ten years, uh, but you know, if we can make an effort to to bring these parties together, I think we should.
0: Just remind us, Stephen, what is the historical ties between the Soviet Union and the African National Congress?
1: So the ties are, are quite uh, significant. Of course, Russia was one of the big supporters of liberation movements in Southern Africa, including in Angola, in Mozambique. Uh, both of which had socialist governments after the initial civil wars. The Soviet Union provided weapons. We know that there were Cuban soldiers and and Russians in in Angola for many years, and that was only resolved when uh, Namibia got its independence in 1990. Uh, Many ANC uh, operatives of a certain generation studied in Russia, had weapons training in Russia and the other countries of the Soviet bloc. Some of them speak Russian. Um, So there's an affinity there. Russia opened diplomatic relations, reopened diplomatic relations with South Africa in 1992, which was quite controversial because it was still the de de Klerk government and they hadn't told the ANC that they were going to open an embassy. So that caused a bit of upset. But we also saw last week that there was a celebration of 30 years of diplomatic relations with South Africa on the very eve that the war started. And senior government officials uh, and military top brass were at that function uh, celebrating this this relationship. And I don't think that was a good look.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, in politics, perception is reality. And the reality is you have ANC but also the head of the the defense force um, meeting at, uh, at – and uh, I wrote an article on this – I said perception is reality, and the reality is you've got uh, deployees of the ANC and and top brass within the South African National Defense Force seemingly ingratiating themselves with the skunk of the world. And those are my words, not anybody else's. From an international relations 101 point of view, was it in poor taste for South Africa to attend this function at the Russian embassy?
1: I think it was. I mean, it was probably prearranged. I'm sure they didn't get the invitation on the day, and maybe they didn't expect the war to be on. But it was, in my view, very insensitive. And uh, you know, if any, if South Africa had a pretension or a, an intention to appear neutral, attending that function and uh, hobnobbing with the great and the good from the Russian embassy on the day of the invasion didn't make for good press, uh, unless, of course, you are from that large section of our population who feels that we have historical ties to the Soviet Union and to Russia, and that this is all about NATO encroachment on uh, on Russia's doorstep. And uh, Russia is right in what it's doing. I mean, I've heard those views. I've heard them on talk radio stations in the media that I've been doing. I've heard them on TV programs. We've seen it in social media. We've seen it in the newspapers. That's a, a strongly held view Amongst many citizens, not only in South Africa, but in other African countries as well.
0: Do we need to be very cautious when we're looking at social media, especially around the Russia Ukraine issue? We know Twitter is not real life. Um, Otherwise, the EFF would have won elections in the past. So we need to be very careful about the opinions that we assume to be of the majority of South Africans. Is social media just a very dangerous place at the moment, considering this information war you've spoken about?
1: It is. And both sides are firing salvos all the time. And uh, what you like and what you retweet, uh, and I think it's particularly so on Twitter, much less so on, say, Instagram or, or Facebook. The platforms are, create a different kind of conversation. Um, I think we must be very cautious. What is the source of this? Is it genuine? Do I pass it on? Uh, do I comment on it? Do I ignore it? Uh, who do I believe? And I think the, the shutting down of Russia Today, uh, RT, in, in Africa, because uh, the European feed is no longer coming, uh, has been a controversial issue. Many people uh, watched that channel. Some condemned it as you know, shameless propaganda. Others said, look, it's important to see the Russian point of view of these things. So I, I think, in a way, it's a shame that it was taken down. I understand the reasons for it. But, uh, yeah, this is a war of ideas, as much as it is a war of of guns and mortars and anti-aircraft uh, uh, missiles.
0: Do you see it escalating beyond, I mean, can it escalate any further? I think any further escalation would be, well, let's talk about the dreaded N-word here. You, a couple of uh, days ago, you had uh, the Russian president put his nuclear deterrent unit on high alert. Did you have a feeling, uh, you'll forgive me here, but I, you're obviously a few years older than I am. I don't remember the Cuban Russian or the Cuban Missile Crisis. Was there a feeling that when Putin had his potentially had his hand on the red button here, if that's a way to, to, to explain it, did you get a particular feeling, nostalgia here?
1: So firstly, I have to set the record straight and say that the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 was 10 years before I was born. (laughs) But I did live through the Cold War. I did live through the Cold War. And uh, I mean, that was a chilling statement. I think it was a veiled warning. And I was asking, is this about attack or defense? It was a veiled warning that just hold on a second, we have nuclear weapons. Would he use them? I mean, they have not been used in battle since uh, 1945, when they were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but they remain extremely destructive weapons. Um, I think that anybody who would contemplate nuclear war uh, would be at the end of their uh, their, their options. You know, it's very worrying that plants like Chernobyl and others have uh, been taken by Russian soldiers. This is; these are not weapons. Uh, areas, because Ukraine gave up its weapons in 1994, with the guarantee that its territorial integrity and its sovereignty would be respected. Uh, and that hasn't happened. Um, yeah, I, I, look, do I think there's impending nuclear war? No. Can this spread? Of course it can spread. Um, but I think if it, if it were to go to the Baltic states or, or <clears throat> somewhere like Georgia or Moldova, um, that would change the whole game and if it was a, a, a NATO state that was attacked uh, and they have 30 members mo- many of them in eastern Europe, if it was a NATO state that w- would be attacked NATO is obliged to respond and then I don't want to be a prophet of doom here but this could be a world war uh, if that happens uh, many people I think didn't think this would happen when an Austrian prince uh, noble was shot in Sarajevo in 1914. Within two months, uh, the world was in the Great War and millions of people died. So I never say never. But uh, I think all sides are also trying to contain this, not to go beyond Ukraine.
0: The North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, do you believe that they are doing everything humanly possible, even at the potential of looking weak, as so many of people have called them? Zelensky is also, he's been begging for help from NATO Is there a policy of they just keep backpedaling, backpedaling? I wouldn't say appeasement, but they are trying absolutely everything within their power not to get into an open war with Russia. That's
1: true. Uh, That's true. And, uh, you know, I think they've done a lot more than what happened in 2014. Remember, this conflict's been going on for eight years. Um, Some may say it's too little too late. I think they're very supportive of the sanctions and they're very scared of uh, this escalating. So they ruled out a no-fly zone because, as we learned from South Africa in Libya in 2011, a no-fly zone means you shoot enemy planes out of the sky. And if that were happening, uh, I think uh, Putin would be very much within his rights to say they've escalated the war if if you have NATO troops firing uh, Russian planes out of the sky. So... Um, there's there's only so much that they can do short of being involved. I mean, NATO itself is not arming the Ukrainians, but NATO is, some of its members are doing so. And Zelensky appealed for airplanes and NATO has said, well, if you've got airplanes and you want to give it to them, give it to them. So, you know, but NATO for all its existence has mainly been a, a defensive alliance. Of course, it was involved in In Libya in 2011, it was involved in the bombing of uh, Yugoslavia in the end of the 90s, in the Bosnian War, in the the Balkan War, sorry. So it has fired shots previously. But, you know, the other point to make is that NATO has been on Russia's border since 1949 when it was formed, because Norway is a member of NATO. And Norway shares 196 kilometers of border with, uh, with, with Russia. Uh, still to this day. So to say that NATO expansion is the reason for this war, in my view, is, is not accurate.
0: I've seen a lot of images, the equivalence being drawn between Adolf Hitler and Vladimir Putin. They're calling him Putler. Is that a fair comparison, do you believe?
1: I think any comparison to the Nazis is dangerous, but he is acting in the way that dictators and power-hungry megalomaniacs who are looking for Lebensraum or, or to subdue uh, uh, states into puppet governments and and uh, vassal states. Um, I think we've got to be very careful because Nazis were responsible for the Holocaust. Uh, they were responsible for upending the whole of Europe. I think we just need to be very careful. I can see why people m- might want to draw comparisons. But I personally uh, would would prefer not to use that. That's not to diminish the seriousness of the situation, but analogies are uh, can sometimes go wrong, and and I, I think one must be very cautious here.
0: It, it's a difficult uh, question to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. W- what do you believe is is Vladimir Putin's endgame here?
1: So I think two things. One is he wants an uninterrupted land bridge between Russia proper and. Crimea, uh, because at the moment it's almost uh, it's a peninsula, but it's an island that doesn't have a connection to Russia proper. So I think that's one of his aims, and I think secondly he wants to install a Moscow-friendly regime in Kiev, uh, one that is never going to join the European Union, that is never going to join NATO, and that will be a similar state to to Belarus, which uh, has has a leader that is very close to Moscow uh, in in his view. Um, I think that's the aim. I think they also want to try and take out as much uh, of, of Ukraine's weapons as possible. Um, and they they want to enhance the security of Russian speakers in the Donbass region. Uh, but you know, it's arguable that doing this is going to ensure their prosperity and their continued existence. The sanctions with the terrible war Um, I'm not sure things are going so well for for those Russian speakers in the Donbass.
0: Do you believe, as so many others do, the Ukrainians certainly are selling the story that he is simply not ever going to stop here? Do you uh, potentially see this as the Sudetenland, 1938, Chamberlain's policy of appeasement? What do you think on that?
1: I think there are parallels, definitely. I think, though, the West has tried to stand up as much as they can, short of getting into a shooting war, which, as we discussed, has the potential for uh, escalation. I mean, these sanctions are not a joke. Major credit card companies, banks, oil, uh, produce, uh, they, they are really going to hurt the Russian economy. Is, is it enough? Is it too late? Is it, it you know not aimed at the right area? But... You know, people asked questions about of of uh, Europe in 1938, uh, and they gave Hitler what he said he wanted, but he took more, and he wanted more, and uh, appeasement was a dismal failure.
0: The issue of these sanctions—they naturally take quite a while to bite, but it's going to affect the r- Russian population, not necessarily the millionaires and billionaires and the oligarchs and, and so on. Yes, they're being targeted, but it's it's the fact that you, as an ordinary Uh, russian can't go and pay for something with your credit card the ruble is tumbling every single day Uh, their stock market is closed they're afraid there's going to be a a sell on the stock market is the idea behind these sanctions do you foresee it getting to such a point that there are so many countries we're going to reach a tipping point where there's going to be a popular uprising against putin and how's he going to respond if that happens
1: well he's going to if it does happen he will respond with the brutality that he's always shown both domestically and internationally, I mean, there have been, I think, six and a half thousand Russian protesters already imprisoned. Um, I think the sanctions will bite. I think they're biting already. I don't think he's going to have a war ch- as big a war chest, but he did uh, actually uh, assemble a war chest and and bought gold and bought other. Uh, I'm not an economist, but he he did other things to san- sa- exactly sanction proof his economy. Don't forget, also, he has a lifeline in China. China, uh, yeah. Russian-China relations are extremely close. Uh, China uh, has afforded some protection for Russia politically, but also economically. And and I think Russia is going to be more and more dependent. I think what we're also going to see is expansion in Africa. Uh, my work takes a look at the Russian footprints in Africa, which is getting more and more significant. Nothing like China's or the US or, or Britain or... European Union, but getting bigger all the time. Uh, Over the weekend, there was a report that said that businesses are going to expand in Africa. Uh, And this happened after 2014. When other markets were closed, Russia desperately sought markets in Latin America, in East Asia, and in Africa.
0: Very lastly, is China looking at Taiwan and going, hmm, the world is very busy with Russia, Ukraine at the moment. Is there a potential for something there?
1: There is a potential. I think China is looking very carefully at what's happening um, because it does have claims over the island of Taiwan and has said on numerous occasions that it is part of one China. uh, And there have been threats to take it by force. If, again, we're wildly speculating here, but if China decided to move now, that would really widen this conflict and it, it's, it would be not unconnected to this conflict. When the dust settles, if the dust settles, and it will at some point settle, maybe maybe China will be emboldened or maybe China will think, mm, no, this is not not viable or feasible at the moment. Um, I think also because America sees China as a much bigger and more important rival than, than Russia is at the moment. I mean, just Obama uh, disparagingly called Russia a regional power and uh, not a global power. And that really, I think, got up Putin's nose. So yes, were there to be two such simultaneous conflicts, we'd have a whole different ballgame.
0: Stephen Gruzd, head of the Russia-Africa Project at the South African Institute of International Affairs. Thanks so much for your thoughts and for your time today.